Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. Today is National Cancer Survivors Day. More on that in just a moment. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, Tracy Townsend covers topics that include the housing struggles some are having during the pandemic. A discussion with Franklin County Interim Commissioner Don Tyler Lee. Efforts in Ohio to pass anti-hazing legislation. And what has happened in Columbus over the past year since George Floyd's death in Minneapolis. And I'll wrap up the hour with a discussion about the stigma associated with those who struggle with opioids. I'll talk with a doctor from the OSU Wexner Medical Center. First up on Columbus Perspective, on the phone with me. Kim Tiboldo, who is the executive chair of the Cancer Support Community and also the author of Your Cancer Roadmap. How are you? Great. Thanks. To, hey, great to be with you, Dave. Thanks for having me. Thanks for talking to us. What is the Cancer Support Community? So the Cancer Support Community is a nonprofit organization that provides over $50 million across the globe in free support and navigation, education, and support services for um, patients, cancer patients, and their loved ones. Uh, each year, um, we have two wonderful uh, affiliate locations uh, up in central Ohio and down in, uh, in Cincinnati, Ohio, as well, providing support and navigation for cancer patients and their loved ones. And today, June 6th, is National Cancer Survivors Day. What is this about? National Cancer Survivor Day um, Day takes place every year on the first Sunday in June. Um, it was established over 37 years ago as an as a opportunity to recognize uh, cancer patients and cancer survivors and also to raise awareness of some of the challenges and obstacles that people face when dealing with the cancer diagnosis. How many are there in the U.S. or in Ohio? Do you have any figures on any of that? So, you know, there are over 17 million cancer survivors across the United States. Um, 1.8 million people will be diagnosed with cancer uh, this year alone in the United States. So we're seeing um, an increase in the number of people diagnosed with cancer, but we're also seeing an increase in the number of people who are surviving uh, cancer, living longer, living better with a cancer diagnosis. So that's the good news. You know, I wanted to ask you, uh, President Biden has talked a lot about his son, Bo, who died of brain cancer. He tour of the James Cancer Hospital in Columbus a couple of months ago, and you were at a hospital in D.C. with First Lady Jill Biden back in January. What is the significance of having a president and First Lady that are engaged in this topic? Well, you know, I'm so pleased that Dr. Jill uh, Biden, our First Lady, wrote the foreword to my book, Your Cancer Roadmap. Uh, she uh, talks in the book about how cancer has been a dark thread that has run through her life and, 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 and through the lives of the Biden family, um, uh, for sure. And I think her experiences with cancer have motivated her to become a fierce advocate for all people uh, impacted by cancer. I had the great pleasure of uh, serving on the board of directors of the Biden uh, Cancer Initiative. And also, Dr. Biden traveled with me uh, two years ago out to um, the Navajo Nation um, in Arizona, where we opened the first ever full-time cancer treatment program on uh, on native land. And so I know the Bidens are both fierce advocates um, uh, for all cancer patients and I think it's terrific that we have them at the helm uh, kind of guiding and leading that conversation. Talking with Kim Tiboldo, executive chair of the Cancer Support Community. Tell us about the book, Your Cancer Roadmap. Uh, yeah, Dave, so Your Cancer 
roadmap uh, is a book, a new book that I've written. It looks at the many challenges that patients, uh, cancer patients face. It offers information, coping strategies, tips, and resources. I have been with the cancer support community for over 20 years, and I've listened to and met with thousands of patients and families across the country. In those conversations, I saw certain themes emerge and found that I was sharing the same information over and over again. In addition, there have been a lot of great advances in the detection and treatment of cancer over the past 20 years. So it just made sense to put all of this into one place in an easy-to-use uh, format. And, and uh, you know, to be honest, Dave, I used my, uh, my COVID time when I wasn't out traveling as much and moving around to take the time to write this book and, and um, put these uh, the tips and, gu- and, and guidance on paper for patients. The pandemic uh, has knocked a lot of people off their game in a lot of ways, including perhaps uh, annual checkups and such. Are you concerned about that? Yes, uh, we, are, we are concerned about that. We know that uh, last year, particularly in the beginning of the pandemic, um, even cancer patients in active treatment were calling us quite distressed that some of their treatments and scans and things were being delayed. Also, we did see you know canceled and delayed uh, cancer screenings. I don't even think we've begun to see the impact of that yet. I guess my uh, message to your listeners right now would be get out there if you haven't you know if, if those things got delayed or put off last year, get out there now. Get those things scheduled. Mammography, colonoscopy. You know we had some important news um, just within the past couple weeks, Dave, where the recommendation for colonoscopy has gone down from the age 50 to age 45. So I think, again, an important piece of information for your listeners, if you're 45, uh, get out there, get your colonoscopy, get your cancer screenings. We have to get all these screenings um, back on track. It's one of the best tools in the toolbox to help us um, fight cancer and cure cancer is, are these screenings. You know, I, I just saw a YouTube video uh, with you from 2015 that I thought was really interesting. You were talking about misconceptions people have about clinical trials, that, that some people think if you're a cancer patient who enrolls in a clinical trial, you might get treatment or you might get a placebo because they think it's a test to see what works and what doesn't in that sense when that's not the case. Not the case. Important to bust that myth, uh, Dave. If you um, enroll in a clinical trial as a cancer patient, you're going to get treatment. Um, it would be unethical not. So you're probably going to get either the standard of care or you're going to get the standard of care uh, plus. So it's important for folks to know um, that if you are in a clinical trial as a cancer patient, you're going to get treatment, you're going to get care. Patients report that they're that they're very well cared for in clinical trials. So I always say to patients, you know, in the, when you're just being diagnosed with cancer, know your diagnosis, know your stage of disease, know your goals of therapy, get a second opinion and ask if there might be a clinical trial that's right for you. These are important questions. How has the advancement of clinical trials been going in recent years? You know, it's, it's slower than it should be. Um, and, and that's the way we're going to see greater advances, more cures for cancer is, is uh, more participation in uh, clinical trials. Unfortunately, only uh, 3 to 4% of adult cancer patients are participating in clinical trials when the data shows that maybe up to 20% of cancer patients could be um, in trials. Every, every medicine that we take now, every therapy that we're on now has been through a very rigorous clinical trials process. I think we learned a lot about clinical trials during the pandemic, but I think there's still a lot of myths and misconceptions about trials, especially trials for cancer patients. So, you know, there's a chapter in this book, uh, Your Cancer Roadmap, about clinical trials, and we try to do some myth-busting in that chapter. So we encourage folks to ask about trials and get educated about trials. You also talk about communication between doctor and patient, and I'm curious, 
if somebody's diagnosed with, you know, stage whatever of colorectal cancer, do they request being in the loop? I mean, do they want to know what their chances of survival are, or will a doctor come forward with that information, or what's the scenario there? So, you know, things have changed a lot as it relates to, you know, cancer patient and communication with their doctors. We tell patients, listen, you're, you're, you're a partner here with your doctor, um, you know, in your care. And, and frankly, Dave, each, each person is going to approach this differently. Some people want all of the information, all of the data, all of the facts. Some patients will say, you know what, doc, I'm going to trust you. You handle it. You make the decisions. And I'm going to, you know, I'm going to follow that plan. There's no right. I always tell patients there's no right way to do it. There's a right way for you. So whatever feels right for you. So if you want all those details you want to dig in, you got to say that to the doc. I want the information. I want the details. I want all of it. Um, if you want to defer to the doctor, let them do that. I always tell patients it's important to take somebody into their appointment with you, whether it's a loved one, a family member, a spouse, an adult child. That second set of ears is critical. Take a notepad. Take pen. Take the pen. Keep writing questions down. Um, and, and, you know, th- there's no bad question. There's no dumb question. You know, this is your life, right? So you have to be your own best advocate, and you have to be the person who's going to gather all of that information and be part of that decision-making process. It really is now today that we, we talk about shared decision-making between the patient and the doctor, and it's really critical. So this Sunday, National Cancer Survivor Day, pretty triumphant time. Hey, 17 million cancer survivors. You know, and I think about my mom's generation, my grandmom's generation, you know, it was the big C and it was talked about in whispers in, in, in closed rooms. Now look what we're doing. You know, we were having National Cancer Survivor Day. Dave, we're celebrating survivors. We're celebrating uh, their journeys. We're celebrating their victories and the many, many contributions that they're making in our communities um, and in our society. And it's so wonderful to be talking about this, you know, kind of out in the open. We've got, again, folks like Jill Biden. I've got an essay by Joan London in the book an essay by ESPN reporter Holly Rowe. I think by these folks coming forward, we know that cancer is the great equalizer, right? It doesn't care if you're an athlete, a celebrity, a journalist, a business person. Um, And so Cancer Survivor Day is a great time to sort of talk about that, talk about some of these victories, talk about the challenges. Um, And it just seemed like a great time to bring my book, Your Cancer Roadmap, forward for, for patients and families. Talking with Kim Tiboldo, Executive Chair, Cancer Support Community, and the author of Your Cancer Roadmap. If folks want more information about the book or other aspects of cancer, Kim, how do they find it? Yeah, Dave, we hope that they'll visit us at cancersupportcommunity.org. Uh, right on the homepage, they can find out about the book. They can pre-order a copy. They can find our wonderful affiliate locations in Central Ohio and Cincinnati there. They can also call right now if they want to speak to one of our navigators. That number is 888 888- Seven nine three nine three five five. So we hope folks will reach out, access these resources, and we want folks to know that they do not have to face cancer alone. Kim, thanks so much for your time and the information. Thank you, Dave. Have a great day. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, here's Tracy Townsend from her Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. Here's Tracy. 
we have winners, but not all the winners in Ohio's Vaximillion contest. That means you still have a chance. Thank you so much for joining us for Face the State. I'm Tracy Townsend. This is Ohio Governor Mike DeWine's effort to get more people vaccinated. There are still drawings left. If you win, how can you protect yourself? 10TV's Lindsay Mills spoke with the winners and a security expert. She has three things we should keep in mind. We provide all types of protection. Tony Casper is the CEO of Safe Passage Consulting, which works to keep people safe through training and more. We're broadcasting to everybody that you just won a million dollars. If you win Vaximillion, like Abigail Bujenski. People were starting to follow me on Instagram and Facebook and message me. And I think that was that was it for me. I knew that um, my name had actually been announced. You'll be in the thick of statewide, even national publicity. We've had a lot of requests and just like Abby, we're not responding to all of them right now. Scholarship winner Joseph Costello and his parents say they plan to lay low for a while. So there are three things to know right away to stay safe. One, make sure your social media is set to private. Next, don't post a picture of your vaccination card. If you did, delete it right away. Also, be skeptical of any calls or messages you get. Worst case, if you're overwhelmed with the calls or messages. You may want to reach out and change your, your phone number. Something simple like that and sharing it with just your, your select group. He also adds situational awareness is important. And yeah. be a little more aware of your, who's in your family, because you may find that you, you're, you're going to have a lot of relatives reach out and say, hey, can we can we get a loan? Can we get this? So even though a lot of this sounds like common sense, Casper says it's good to be mindful and prepared. These are things that we tell people when they're going on vacation, like the executives when they're going on vacation. Don't post things on social media that say I'm not home. You know what I mean? It's simple as that. But yeah, I mean, I think you're right on the money. Yeah. No pun intended. Yeah, <laughs> nailed it. I should have used that. <laughs> Lindsay Mills, 10 TV News. And one other thing, turn off geotagging on photos on your phone to avoid sharing your location. Also, following in Ohio's footsteps, California now having a $116 million prize to encourage people to get vaccinated. President Joe Biden stopped in Cleveland. He seemed to support the Vaximillion idea with these two words, it's working. Businesses are opening, restaurants are reopening, and I hear that uh, as last night's vaccine lottery, Ohio has a new millionaire. <laughs> I'll tell you what, who would have thunk it? A million bucks for getting the vaccine. The data has been incredibly important during the fight against COVID-19. And here in Ohio, that data is changing. Remember that map we would show you day in and day out during the pandemic? This was called the health advisory map, and it's been used since July of 2020, and it shows four risk levels. State officials announced they will no longer be updating this tool. There is a CDC moratorium aimed at preventing evictions during the pandemic, but 10 investigates found a steady stream of eviction cases anyway. There are exceptions to the CDC's rule. Landlords are not barred from filing eviction cases. Chief investigative reporter Bennett Haverly explained unemployment may be part of the problem. When COVID struck, Franklin County's eviction court moved. So you filed an eviction case. From the courthouse to the convention center to allow for better social distancing. Typically, the court's docket is capped at 100 cases every day. 
COVID's long reach has also wreaked havoc on housing. Michael Smith had been splitting rent with his daughter, son-in-law, and three grandchildren until last May when they moved out and he fell behind. Just before the pandemic hit, he tells me he was laid off from his roofing gig. So I've been handling this $1,300 rent up until August is when I finally got behind. We came here trying to get a sense of the financial burden some are shouldering one year into the pandemic. Smith was one of the few tenants willing to talk to us on camera. It looks like the case was set April 9th. But more than half a dozen others told us similar stories off camera of COVID layoffs, furloughs, and falling behind while fighting for unemployment benefits. Not only all of that, but there aren't too many renters who want to accept a new applicant who's getting unemployment. So that's the rock and the hard place of my situation is I can't even reapply anywhere because of the income that I have now doesn't reflect uh, roofing income. Last year, when COVID struck, the CDC issued a moratorium on evictions, concerned people on the move could more easily spread the virus. But the enforcement of that order has been patchy, and a recent federal judge's ruling also threatens its future. But while the moratorium may have stopped people from being set out on the street, it did not stop evictions from being filed in court. Data provided to 10 investigates by the court shows the up and down flow of hundreds of eviction cases since March of last year. Notice the new uptick in filings of more than 1,600 in March and more than 1,000 last month. Robbie Southers is an attorney managing a pilot legal program offering guidance to those facing eviction. He's seen a common theme. So unemployment's driving. Unemployment's by far the biggest challenge that people are facing right now. Landlords like Ray Jeffries are trying to stay afloat too. He tells me he doesn't like having to file evictions, but has bills to pay. And for some landlords to know that they need the money, and that has hurt. Jeffries told me he's encouraged by the fact that his tenants won't be out on the street because of resources like Impact Community Action that provides rental assistance to those facing eviction. Jimmy Spurlock is a supervisor. And when you say assistance, you literally mean dollars in pockets, right? Exactly. Yes, sir. Spurlock told me that Impact has more than $30 million in rental assistance available. It's been a lifeline in a year few could have predicted. The process means there's help for those who may have been forced to find a new place to call home. Bennett Haberly, 10 Investigates. If you have something you'd like 10 Investigates to look into, email Bennett and the team at 10investigates at 10tv.com. Franklin County's newest commissioner isn't planning to stay in that post long, but has her eye on working to address issues in the short time that she's there. Don Tyler Lee was appointed to fill, on an interim basis, the commission seat of Marilyn Brown, who resigned. Interim Commissioner Tyler Lee is really no stranger to public service. Recently, she worked as Deputy Chief of Staff for the Mayor's Office. She's also worked as Senior Vice President for Community Impact at the United Way of Central Ohio and as Assistant VP of Government Relations for The Ohio State University. The newly appointed commissioner told me that it's humbling and exciting to serve in the community that she's also calls home. This is an this is interim. Yes. But um, I've also, over the course of my career here in Columbus, become more than familiar with your work in the community. Um, this is not, as they say, your first rodeo. And I say that because you've already decided where you want to sort of channel your efforts. So can you talk about that for us? Sure. So even though I'm going to be here for um, a short time, I'm excited to 
build on the great work that Marilyn Brown has done and that Commissioners Boyce and O'Grady are doing, uh, continuing to advance the poverty blueprint, uh, continuing to work on issues of racial equity, and continuing to um, determine the ways that we as a county want to move through uh, the pandemic. We know that obviously COVID-19 is still in our midst. Um, And while things are starting to open up, we've still got some work to do. We've got about 40% of our residents vaccinated. um, So we still need to get those numbers up even more. And, you know, as we get into summer months and people are naturally inclined to gather and want to be together, we want to continue to make sure that people are being cautious uh, because we still need to make sure our numbers are going in an opposite direction. You know, one thing we can say um, of the many things we can say about the pandemic is that it really did peel the Band-Aid off of poverty in our community. Um, What are some of the issues? Where do you think you can be most helpful? So the issues that really have um, really been highlighted through the pandemic are ones, like you said, that we knew were there, but they've just grown exponentially. And whether that's um, unemployment or underemployment, uh, transportation, lack of access to health care, housing instability, food insecurity, um, those are all things that we need to continue to double down on to make sure our residents have not only what they need to survive, but to thrive. I've been a more uh, behind the scenes support person um, in and around government. I never envisioned myself in uh, an office holder role. Uh, Certainly an honor to be the first African-American woman county commissioner. Uh, It's very humbling, but in some ways it also makes me a little sad that in 2021, we're still talking about firsts. Um, But as my dear friend, Congresswoman Beatty says, um, you can be a first, but what's more important is that there's a second and a third and a fourth. So hopefully it's a door open uh, for other African-American women to serve in this capacity in the future. Franklin County Commissioner Don Tyler Lee, who in the interim role will serve on the commission for up to 45 days. The Franklin County Democratic Party will name a permanent replacement next month. Hazing, center stage at the State House. This is and has been an epidemic, and the current laws are not deterring the activities. The parents of Stone Folds gave an emotional plea for change. There's a new push to remove Representative Larry Householder from office, but does it have support from the House Speaker? Plus, the Ohio Bureau of Criminal Investigation is running ragged. That's according to the state's attorney general, but he says it's necessary to fix the problem. Hello, I'm Todd Markowitz, Vice President and General Manager of Radio Ohio, which owns 97.1 The Fan. We're an equal opportunity employer dedicated to providing broad outreach efforts regarding job vacancies within our company. We seek the help of local organizations in referring qualified applicants. Organizations that wish to receive our vacancy information should send their request to the attention of Human Resources, Radio Ohio, 770 Twin Rivers Drive, Columbus, 43215. If you'd like to view our current job openings, please visit our website at 971thefan.com and Thanks for listening. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV. I'm asking you, please, to help us keep the promise Sherry and I made to Stone on his deathbed. The parents of Stone Foltz made an emotional plea to state lawmakers. They want them to pass an anti-hazing bill to make sure no other family suffers a similar tragedy. 
It's named after Colin Wyant, who died after a hazing incident at Ohio University. Stonefolds died back in March after an off-campus hazing incident at Bowling Green State University. Both of his parents and his best friend testified before state lawmakers. Collins Law would increase penalties for hazing in Ohio. Corey and Sherry Foltz say if this law had been in place before now, it could have saved their son. Stone thought these guys were his friends because they were soon to be his brothers. He trusted them, yet none of these brothers were around to help. In fact, they just took him to his apartment, closed the door, and left him behind and never saw him again. This is not about emotion. Sherry and I do wake each morning. Our hearts break wide open again and again, knowing our son will never come through the door of our home to give us a hug and a kiss on the cheek that we very much need. However, the only reason we are here today is to put a stop to any form of hazing, therefore saving lives. Officials from Miami University also testified in support of the bill. A city in Warren County is the first in Ohio to ban abortions. Lebanon City Council unanimously passed this resolution. The penalty is six months in jail or a $1,000 fine. The decision sparked strong emotions from both sides of this issue. This is so important to me because I was adopted in a caste system that I would have been in the lowest caste in India. And I found that my mom chose life over me. She knew that most likely I would have been born and raised on the streets without probably even a father in the home. Roe versus Wade should be the floor of all um, you know, abortion legislation. And to think that Lebanon City Council has the audacity to get rid of abortion in town. I don't know. It just seems like a major overstep. The ACLU of Ohio and Planned Parenthood say that they are prepared to take legal action. More than 20 cities in Texas and two in Nebraska are sanctuary cities for the unborn. College athletes across the state of Ohio may soon start making money for endorsements. A state senator announced a bill that would give student athletes the ability to make money for their name, image, and likeness. This bill would keep universities from stopping student-athletes from getting paid. Students would need to notify their college or university 15 days before entering a contract for an endorsement. Ohio State Athletic Director Gene Smith says most students will not be getting major endorsements, such as a shoe deal, but they might get paid by a hometown business like a car company or a pizza shop. These are elite athletes who are trying to cover an average of $27,000 a year, in, uh, I mean, over their time in debt. It's noted in the legislation that athletes will not be able to be endorsed by tobacco, liquor, or marijuana companies, or casinos if this passes. This would take effect on July 1st. Ohio lawmakers introduced a resolution to remove Representative Larry Householder from office. This resolution says Householder should not be permitted to continue to serve in the House of Representatives. Householder was indicted for racketeering, bribery, and money laundering in connection with the bill passed that cost Ohioans billions. We absolutely must be mindful of the precedent we set. We should speak clearly, as Democrats already have, that corruption has no place in the General Assembly. 
While a felony conviction may be immediately disqualifying, the Ohio Constitution has also provided House members as with a means to, by which to expel a member that has engaged in other misconduct short of felony conviction. Ohio House Speaker Bob Cup responded saying, quote, I have consistently maintained that Larry Householder should resign from the Ohio House of Representatives. A new group of state lawmakers met virtually to talk about gun violence. Our focus with this caucus is about preventing gun violence, not restricting the rights of law-abiding citizens. I'm confident that if we have the right conversations, focus on the right topics, we can strike common ground with those who typically have aligned with the policies we advocate for. This is the Ohio Gun Violence Prevention Caucus, and in that first meeting, a student shared his perspective. He actually went to the lawmakers with the idea for this particular group. What we've seen with the COVID pandemic is that gun violence doesn't stop even when the rest of the world does. Um, the whole world shut down for 14 months and the gun violence has only skyrocketed. The group includes lawmakers from both the Ohio House and the Ohio Senate. Attorney General Dave Yost says the spike in violent crimes in Ohio is leaving the Bureau of Criminal Investigations swamped. According to the AG's office, BCI currently has 83 special agents and 14 special agent supervisors across its department, handling many things from special investigations to cyber crimes. Yost says he's asked lawmakers for more money to hire more agents. Let's skip the COVID year. I mean, we're way up over 20, but let's look at the last uh, non-COVID year. It was 2019. Our, our request for assistance through the first four months of the year up over 50 percent. The number of homicide investigations has quadrupled, uh, a fourfold increase. Yost says sexual assaults are up by a third and officer-involved shooting incidents remain the same, but the number of times they are called to investigate is up. The murder of George Floyd last May sparked a movement across the country. Demonstrations and protesters filled city streets. I checked back with three African-American lawmakers about those protests, the outcry, and the question of responsibility. Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV. One year ago, people packed Columbus City streets to protest the police killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis. It was a moment that sparked a movement, and three well-known African-American lawmakers got involved. I spoke with them about the impact of that time and what's next. History playing out in the streets of Columbus, Ohio, part of a nationwide demand for change. A raw response to a police officer in Minneapolis one year ago killing George Floyd during an arrest. Families, community organizers, and even three lawmakers were in the mix, too. They say as a show of support, but a demonstration that got them pepper sprayed in a moment many thought would lead to much-needed change. Did it? To get something of a progress report, we got Columbus City Council President Shannon Harden, Franklin County Commissioner Kevin Boyce, and Congresswoman Joyce Beatty together again for reflection. Here we are almost a year later. How far have we come or have we progressed at all? Our backdrop? 
what many consider the heart of the black community, the King Arts Complex on Columbus's east side. This conversation takes place just days last month after a jury finds former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin guilty of killing Floyd. Something that should make us be in a, a mood of feeling that we're moving forward. But at that same time, right here in my district, in our community, we were fighting for advancing and changing police reform. Have we done some? Yes. Have we done enough? Absolutely not. People are tired and they're hurting uh, and they're looking to not just us as, as black elected leaders, but all of us to step up and, and, and say, when is enough is enough? When you ask the question about, you know, where are we today? We're in the same place we were last year. Uh, Councilman Hardin said that we're tired. I, I would go further and say that this community is exhausted. Yeah. A community will take its exhaustion to the streets, but these leaders believe there's an opportunity to build on that energy. Council President Hardin points to council's work over the past year to ban no-knock warrants, prevent hiring police with hate group affiliations, and implementing a civilian review board. The truth is we can't do it alone. We cannot do it alone. We have to have the George Floyd uh, Policing Act passed. Uh, cities are trying, uh, but this is entrenched issues. Democrats drafted the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act to focus on civil rights and police reform. The legislation aims to combat police misconduct, excessive force, and racial bias in policing. Those issues, to Hardin's point, are entrenched but not insurmountable. All three of these leaders point to the Chauvin verdict as a move in the right direction. You had white police officers coming and saying, we should not have the chokeholds. We should not have the no-knock warrant. Now we need to get them to say, we should be able to deal with qualified immunity. We need to be able to deal with a checkered past. There is also the need, they say, for straight talk about race, with more than people of color being in the conversation. The one thing that I will say is, you know, to my white brothers and sisters out there, they have stood up and talked about this in a way that's helped move in the cause, but I challenge you to join in even deeper because until we all are sort of getting pepper sprayed, if you will. Until we all are in that place where we're willing to go stand together, then this change that we seek is just not going to occur at the pace we want it to. And so I don't want to be standing here this time next year having this same conversation that we're having today. The George Floyd Justice and Policing Act passed the House, which is Democratic-controlled, on a mostly party-line vote of 220 to 212. The Senate has not yet voted. In this morning's note of promise, a Columbus student's artwork will soon be hanging in the U.S. Capitol. That's after she won the 2021 Congressional Arts Competition for Representative Joyce Beatty's 3rd District. The winning artwork is called Flower Girl. It's by Nessana Kepler from the Columbus Alternative High School. Her artwork will hang among other winning artwork from every other state. And we offer our congratulations to her. Thank you all for joining us today. And remember, if it affects you, your family in Ohio, we are here to make sure those accountable face the state. That's again Tracy Townsend, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, from their Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV.
This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and joining me on the phone is Dr. Lori Pierce. She's the president of ASCO, the American Society of Clinical Oncology. She's also a radiation oncologist. How are you? I'm doing just fine. How are you this morning? Good. Thanks for talking to us. Your annual meeting, I guess, again, virtually this time around, but your annual meeting is underway uh, talking about uh, developments in cancer research and treatment. That's correct. Uh, American Society of Clinical Oncology, is. we're a global society where we have more than 45,000 professionals as members, and, and these professionals are over 150 countries. Um, and we focus on evidence-based information for all types of cancer and treatment for, um, to care for people with cancer. In our meetings, we have information from over 5,000 abstracts will be presented on the latest uh, breakthrough in cancer treatment. Now, I have to ask you, because it's, uh, I guess, kind of an obvious question, uh, with much of the world being sort of locked down over the last year, has that harmed cancer research? Um, that's a great question. Certainly when the pandemic first hit, um, there were many aspects of our treatment and our research that had to shut down, but then we we were able to re-engage, certainly on the treatment side, earlier than we were on the research side. Um, but with safe practices, we were able to reinstate many of our research efforts. We did lose some time um, on some of the positive momentum, but we are back and, and moving forward, and uh, we continue to uh, seek more and more funding, federal funding, to support our research efforts so that we kind of get beyond that bump and we come back even stronger than what we were before the pandemic. Cancer, uh, from what I understand, has in some ways sort of connections to viruses. Is this work, this research on the coronavirus, could it at all be helpful in any way down the road on cancer research? I think it will be. Certainly some of the techniques that were used in developing the vaccines are techniques that we use in terms of research with cancer. And, and I think, um, as with most types of, of research, they're, they're connected. Um, you don't just have cancer. You don't just have uh, infectious disease. You don't just have other areas. There is a common denominator. And as you strengthen one, you strengthen them all. So the short answer is absolutely it will have a positive um, connection to furthering our cancer therapies in a more expeditious fashion. What are some of the news uh, that's expected to be talked about at this uh, ASCO meeting? So there will be a lot of, of um, excitement over immunotherapies. And as you and your audience know, we are using immune therapies to be able to release the, our immune system, which is very effective at fighting off cancer cells. It's interesting. Cancer cells have learned a way to be able to blunt the immune system. But now we found a way to be able to release the immune system so that we can effectively use our immune system to fight off cancer cells. And so you will hear from the results at ASCO um, many important studies in advanced stage disease and early stage disease for lung cancer, melanoma, uh, cancers of the head and neck, um, esophageal cancers, renal cancers, so many different types of cancers where we see that adding a treatment that can release the immune system significantly reduces the risk of progression of disease or disease recurrence. So that's very, very exciting. Um, We'll hear about a study in patients who, breast cancer patients who have have been diagnosed with breast cancer because they have a breast cancer gene, BRCA1 or BRCA2. And this is a study that is a randomized study, a federally funded study, that shows that there's a certain adjuvant therapy, a certain type of treatment called PARC inhibitor, and I won't bore you with the details of that. But basically, 
with only three years of follow-up, we're seeing a significant reduction in recurrence of disease and distant disease in these patients who have um, a, a, a breast cancer due to a mutation. So that's very powerful, and, and it emphasizes the importance of testing women who may be at risk for having this mutation, because if they do, this may be a therapy that will help them to reduce the risk of having their disease to come back. Um, there's another study, there's so many studies, there's another study that is very important in patients who have metastatic prostate cancer and very, very difficult um, cancer to treat. And this is a study that's using a radio ligand, um, which is using radiation bound to, a bound to a molecule that attaches to the prostate cancer and it delivers the radiation. And the study shows a significant, not only significant reduction in progression of disease, but also a significant improvement in survival in a group of patients that's been very difficult to treat. Um, and then there are many studies that are also looking at equity of care. We have to be sure that all of these amazing studies that we have, that we apply them equitably. All patients deserve high-quality high care. Um, and so we will have a range of, of therapy outcomes and a range of of abstracts reminding us of the importance of equitable cancer care. Talking with Dr. Lori Pierce again, she is the uh, president of ASCO, the American Society of Clinical Oncology. Cancer, for instance, melanoma, can start out as you know, a mole on your skin that changes, but it's when that cancer has moved on to your lungs or your brain or your liver that it kills you. And, and it seems like no matter what kind of cancer, many of them, it comes down to how to treat it when it does spread. Is that sort of the magic bullet on figuring out how to deal with the spreading of cancer uh, that, that will end up getting rid of all of it? Um, what, the point you make is a very important point. We know that in patients who have um, disseminated disease, it's very, very difficult to effectively treat them and to um, minimize further progression. The, as opposed to those who have early stage disease where they are potentially curable, and then you take it to the next step, which is what you're taking, is can you prevent the cancers? And so that is the full continuum of, of, of cancer development, from prevention to early uh, disease to advanced stage disease. And, to, and survivorship as well. And so many of the studies at our ASCO meeting will look at each of those uh, points along the continuum and make recommendations for the best possible therapy at that particular point in the stage of the patient. With you being a radiation oncologist, has that field and chemotherapy, are those ever expanding and, and are we still learning new ideas and ways to use those methods to treat cancer? Oh my gosh, we're absolutely uh, learning new ways to, to use these therapies. So we're coming up with new chemotherapies every day, um, we're finding new indications, new ways to be able to use chemotherapy, we're finding ways to combine the therapies. And you mentioned radiation, you mentioned uh, chemotherapy. There are many studies that are looking at chemotherapies that can sensitize the tumors to radiation so that you get even more uh, efficacy out of the radiation than you could with just radiation alone. And we're finding different ways to give the radiation, not only with journal beam, but we can plan it with intensely modulated radiotherapy. We can use brachytherapy. We can use the radio ligand that I mentioned in that vision study. So there are many ways to be able to live therapies and there are many ways to be able to combine therapies so that you get even greater efficacy and that you can do so safely. So it's very important to, 
to have efficacious treatment, and it's very important to deliver the treatment safely. And both of those endpoints are, are studied very, very carefully in all of our trials. Just a moment or so to go with Dr. Lori Pierce with the American Society of Clinical Oncology. What is the, the one kind of cancer or situation with cancer that is most frustrating to you? The one type of, the one situation of cancer that's most frustrating to me is uh, a situation where a patient has a cancer and they don't have the ability to receive the care they need. That is extremely frustrating to me because, again, every patient deserves equal treatment. And we know there are patients out there who don't have the means because they don't have Medicaid coverage, because we don't have Medicaid expansion, um, and they are either um, unaware they have coverage or, more likely, they don't have coverage, and so they can't then receive the treatment that they need. So that is the most frustrating thing to me because this is under this is within our power to correct. And I think we need to send a very strong message that everything needs to be done not only from the provider level, but more important from the government level, um, from a community level, that um, every patient deserves equal treatment and every step needs to be taken to be sure that they secure the treatment that they need. Interesting. Uh, Dr. Pierce, if folks want more information online, where do they find it? Um, they should go to cancer.net. That is our website at ASCO where physicians and patients alike can get the latest uh, information on all types of treatment and all types of cancer. Dr. Lori Pierce, president of the American Society of Clinical Oncology and radiation oncologist and professor at Michigan. Uh, thanks so much for your time today. We sure appreciate it. Thank you so much. How do you know if you or a loved one is at risk of problem gambling? By knowing the signs, such as borrowing money, hiding unpaid debts, bragging about wins, or just plain irritability. Sound familiar? Get Set Before You Bet is Ohio's initiative to help keep gambling safe and responsible for everyone. How does it work? Just visit BeforeYouBet.org to learn more and take the responsible gambling quiz. Together, we can keep gambling safe and responsible in Ohio. This message brought to you by Ohio for Responsible Gambling. We are advocates. We are defenders. We are champions. And friends. We are the Association of Zoos and Aquariums. 230 accredited members employing thousands. All dedicated to the care and conservation of Earth's precious wildlife. Sea turtles. African penguins. California condors. Cheetahs. And countless endangered species that are close to extinction. See for yourself at aza.org slash join us. Or at an AZA accredited zoo and aquarium today. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and joining me on the phone is Dr. Fung Nguyen. She's with the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center. She's a physician specializing in addiction medicine. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Thanks for talking to us. We're going to talk about aspects of the opioid use crisis. And, you know, everybody's been focused on the pandemic for the last year, but this is an ongoing problem. What can you tell us about what you're still seeing? Well, sadly, we've actually seen an increase in overdoses and um, use of opioids and other um, substances during the time of the pandemic. I would guess that that becomes even more alarming because they kind of get left behind and their lives are even more complicated than they were before when they were dealing with these problems. 
Yes, uh, it's been very difficult for people who are living with substance use disorders um, because so many of the support systems that have been a part of the recovery um, were affected so much by the pandemic. And we're going to talk about one area that we don't hear a lot about. You're involved with a committee dedicated to decreasing stigma around addiction. Can you talk about that? Yes. So um, stigma is very important when it comes to the treatment of patients with uh, any type of substance use disorder, uh, especially with the opioid use disorder, because stigma is when you have negative stereotypes that often about a group of people that often lead to discrimination. And when that occurs, that changes their outcomes when it comes to their mental health, their physical health, and their ability to recover. So who are the folks that are on the committee, and what are the kind of things that you're talking about? I uh, work with a number of other physicians, many of them who also have special interest in addiction medicine, as well as nurses um, involved in cancer care and mental health and some social workers. Give us some examples of instances, you know, where people are thinking wrongly about those who are, are suffering from this. So there are many assumptions that people will make about people who have opiate use disorder. Uh, some of these assumptions um, are negative, and they include um, statements or comments that the people are uh, choosing to use the substance um, and that it's more, quote, and Talking with Dr. Fung Nguyen, who is from uh, the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center, specializing in addiction medicine. Some of the uh, terms, uh, I understand that there's a desire to move away from some terms like saying that someone is clean when they are no longer taking these drugs because that insinuates at one time they were unclean, which is the wrong way to look at it. That is definitely correct. Um, That term has been used not only um, towards urine drug tests that have been used for screening purposes, uh, but then also towards an actual person. And so it can be very difficult for a person when there is that assumption and implication that they were dirty and that now because they are no longer using those substances and they're abstinent from the drugs, that they are now clean. We hear a lot, too, about folks who are caught up in this opiate situation. They may turn to stealing from family members or, you know, rummaging through medicine cabinets or whatever. And and this is something that is not part of their normal character, which must make it as much, uh, you know, a mental issue as well going forward because they recognize in themselves how much they have changed. So what we do like to do is actually help people separate their behavior from who they are as a person. So with the substance use disorders, there are behaviors that occur that are um, characteristic of the substance use disorder. However, that does not mean that that is a bad person or that is the normal character of that person. And 
when it comes down to it, I see many people in recovery who beat themselves up over the behaviors that have occurred. And in some ways, they actually stigmatize themselves and they consider themselves a problem and themselves as the thing that's bad, even though when it comes down to it, it was the behavior that was not welcome. Um, And when they're in recovery, they stop doing those behaviors because they're no longer stuck in that cycle of current addiction. How big of a role does counseling play in addition to just physically being able to separate yourself from opioids? Counseling is really important because it helps people figure out ways of coping with uh, stressful situations. There are many times where people will relapse or start using a substance again because of the amount of stress that is going on in their lives. So having a good treatment that involves, having good treatment that involves counseling um, can help people in the long run um, decrease their chances of any type of relapse in the future. Um, We also like to use medications as well to help people in their substance use disorder uh, to help prevent relapses and um, to help them in their treatment as well. Talking with Dr. Fong Huynh, who is uh, with the OSU Wexner Medical Center. She's a physician specializing in addiction medicine. You know, the ads that we've been hearing for a couple of years about denial, uh, you know, don't live in denial, Ohio. You've dealt with patients who are struggling. What is your take on the families and the disbelief that these folks have ended up in this situation? Well, when it comes down to it, this is a medical condition. It can happen to anybody, and it's not any type of uh, character judgment when it comes to who is affected by it and who's not affected by it. I mean, 10% of people who use substances end up having a substance use disorder, and so um, knowing that, we need to be open to the idea that it could happen to anybody because it's not about whether somebody's a good person or a bad person. Have the measures that the state has taken over the years in terms of uh, limiting dosages of painkillers and cracking down on pill mills, has that made a difference in opioid misuse? You know, we used to hear that a lot of them were people who had an accident or an injury. They would go on painkillers, and then when the prescription ended, they turned to the street for heroin. What is the typical story these days that you're seeing? That still does occur, and it is still a concern um, that we are very vigilant about now, uh, which I think uh, was not something that back when more opioids were being prescribed um, had been considered. However, it has decreased significantly. So I do think that the state and um, the healthcare system has been working really hard to decrease those numbers so that there are less people affected. Um, When it comes down to it, it's really important to make sure that um, unused prescription opioids that were not used um, for whatever condition it was uh, prescribed for gets disposed of properly so that it's not hanging around in the house and somebody else who does not need that medication uh, gets their hands on it. And also to make sure that Um, In general, people are aware of how important it is to not um, just try these substances because they are experimenting 
or want to just try something different. Um, so that would, in that type of situation, includes parents talking to their kids because um, kids just don't seem to realize how dangerous it can be. Um, and having their parents talk to them about it and be upfront about it can be a very useful way of preventing more um, younger people from possibly becoming dependent on these medications. Dr. Wynn, if somebody's uh, listening who either has this problem or somebody in their family does, what what would your initial statement to them be about what to do? Reach out for help. So there are many um, ways of um, finding help now when it comes to the medical center at Ohio State. We have Talbot Hall, which is the main center for addiction medicine um, at Ohio State, and then I also work at a primary care addiction medicine clinic. So we have some services to help people in need, um, and there's a lot more community resources as well. So I I would say that the first step would be to reach out, um, make the phone call to see if um, you can make that appointment to at least get an assessment to determine what the next best step may be for you. And what about family members or loved ones, spouses, friends, who are seeing the person go through this? I think one of the most important things, even though it's difficult at times because of some of the behaviors that may have happened in the past, is to continue to show support and love for the person and remember who they are as a person um, rather than focusing on the behaviors that even they most of the time recognize is not the most appropriate. Um, By providing that love and support for that person, uh, it can sometimes bring them a little bit closer to being able to make that step for themselves um, to try to seek some help. Dr. Fung Nguyen joining us from Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center. Anything else you'd like to add? Regarding the stigma um, piece, and what we were talking about regarding stigma, um, I think the, one of the most important things about it is making sure that we speak in a way that is respectful towards everyone and making sure that we um, say things that are characterizing a behavior versus what is a person. So making sure that when we talk about people who have substance use disorders, we are actually saying that. We're saying it's a person with a substance use disorder and not an addict, not a junkie, Um, not using those terms that are just very negative and make somebody sound like um, they're a bad person. Um, The more respect that people with substance use disorders get, um, the more they're willing to come in for treatment and possibly less Um, going to have less of that self-stigmatizing narrative in their head uh, because because they are thinking that because other people are treating them that way, that that's how they should treat themselves as well. And when it comes down to it, everyone deserves respect and uh, deserves the treatment that they need for any uh, chronic medical condition. Do you recommend uh, folks go online for any information? Yes. So um, if you would like information on stigma, Um, There is information on the National Institutes of Health website. Um, So you can just Google um, NIH and stigma um, or Google NIH words matter. 
and that will bring up um, a website that talks about more about stigma and has tables where it will actually sh uh, give you advice on which words to use instead of ones that you may have heard in the past that have been um, quite negative. Um, and then when it comes to treatment, um, there are a number of different websites that you can go to. Um, Ohio State Wexner Medical Center does have some information on um, treatment, so our website for the medical center will have information. Interesting take on it, some, some new angles on, on this whole problem. Dr. Fung Nguyen joining us. Uh, she's a physician specializing in addiction medicine with the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center. Thanks so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. Heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS AM, that's 1460 ESPN Columbus, and Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS FM, Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan. Join us again next Sunday for Columbus Perspective.